You're listening to Vermont Made, the show where Vermont creatives tell all about one thing they've made. I'm your host, Desmond Peoples, and in this episode I speak with the fantastic Emily Bernard, a University of Vermont professor and author of a number of books, most recently the much-celebrated essay collection Black is the Body, stories from my grandmother's time, my mother's time, and mine, which just might be one of my very favorite books. Emily spoke with me about life after the success of Black is the Body, what intimacy and the page mean to her, and about her next project, a collection of essays exploring the lives of several black women artists in the public eye through history, for which Emily has been awarded a 2020 Andrew Carnegie Fellowship. It's sure to be another hit. So, so yeah, thank you so much for, for talking with me. Um, uh, when I had first thought of this episode, I, you know, I, I thought we might talk about Black is the Body and your personal experiences, some of the personal experiences that you explore in the book, particularly as they relate to um, race in Vermont. But as we talked, it turns out you're a little tired of talking about all that, understandably. So today, um, let's talk about uh, life after Black is the Body and, of course, your new work, Unfinished Women. Um, so my first question for you, uh, it's been three years since the publication of Black is the Body and its wild success. So how has, uh, this experience changed you? That's a great question. And I also want to preface by saying, I think when we last talked, I was in the squarely in the middle of that fatigue and overwhelm. And I feel differently now, but it is, it's funny because I gave a talk, I went to Albany just to say, um, you know, what I've been trying to do, what I learned more than anything else are, are the demands on the life of, of the, of a writer in public. Um, it's just something I'd never experienced before. You know, I mean, I have, this is my fifth book and I love all my children, but mm-hmm. this one had just a different, this one was a jock and it was, all, it was a cheerleading team. It was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I mean, the other ones were quiet and studious and, you know, more like me. And this one had a different public life than I imagined. I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, it's kind of be, be careful what you wish for <laughs> experience, you know. But um, I will say that the book has had, you know, just a really interesting life. But I want to start by talking about my experience at the University of Albany, which is something I agreed to do some months ago as part of their New York Writers Series. I've been there before. I was part of a discussion around the television adaption of The Rides Watching God. Um, and the director on that film was, is um, the first Black woman filmmaker, uh, excuse me, prominent director. Um, and so I was part of a talkback because of my work on the Hurston novel. So it was really different to come back as a kind of, as a, you know, the showrunner or the, the, you know, principal. Um, and I just want to make sure that I'm going to get her name. Dornell Martin. And actually the film was written by Susan Lloyd Parks. Um, so Dornell Martin was the director on that film. Um, there I was watching God. And the film came out in 2005. And she was part of the New York State um, Literary Series. I feel like I have to get that right too. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just want to, you know, credit everybody right. 
the New York State Writers Institute. So I was there um, mid-February, the New York State Writers Institute. As I said, I was the you know principal actor, and it was a different experience. Um, and the students were wonderful. In fact, one of the students, it was always such a pleasure, as you know this very well yourself, to just be around just bodies of Black people, just, you know, and all the kinds of people of color. And it's just, it's not, it was not just, it was organic, you know, I just mm-hmm. turned around and there were these lovely young students. So one of the students said, I want to ask you a question and I hope it's not inappropriate. And I told her, I said, you know, it's the first time in three years, the first time I've, I, it's the first time I've, I've given a reading and a reader has been able to imagine that there is in fact a boundary and a dis- <laughs> difference between sharing my life and writing a book about my life, you know, that, mm-hmm. that actually in order to, to have that extra literary information, it requires trust and knowing someone and you're not, and, you know, so I love that she, what she exhibited, what she knew she was not entitled, you know, mm-hmm. to ask me. And so there, that made me more eager to, to answer her questions, you know, and of course the question was totally respectful and benign, but I told her, I said, I really respect that. And another student had a question and said, I want to respect the same boundary. It was just, it was interesting. And it's something that, um, I had to learn myself, you know, I think for me, I don't consider myself a writer of memoir. I consider myself an essayist. And I think that there's a, an important distinction there, largely having to do with form. You know, I'm very interested in form um, as opposed to content, really. I love it when I read an essay about something I thought I had no interest in, but because of the way that, you know, the writer articulates it, you know, it, suddenly I'm a, I'm a fan and I'm intrigued. And of course that can happen in any, in any genre. But the essay, I think the demand is equal on the writer to um, exhibit some kind of attention, careful attention to form um, the same demands for form as content. Anyway, so um, that was a wonderful experience, but, you know, and it was a tail end of a lot of these experiences of uh, being in public as a writer, and I've said several times, you know, you write a book and you're so, you t- are taken care with the ways the sentences move and, you know, punctuation and all those exciting things to us. And then you look up and there are readers and they have their own needs and their own, and in this world of social media, that can be very overwhelming. I don't, I don't like it. Um, what I learned is I, I don't like it. And I, and I have friends who were very successful writers who really enjoy the social media space. They're good at it. Uh-huh. You know, I have several friends who have pithy things to say, you know, several times a day on Twitter oh. <laughs> and I enjoy following them. I am not one of them. I've about probably one interesting thing to say, you know, and, and it's probably not appropriate, you know, <laughs> really for audiences of people who I don't know. Um, so I, I, I had to go there to know there. As, as Orna Hurston, to put it in her words, um, I wouldn't have known that uh, this would feel so taxing, you know. Um, but I enjoyed it. Of course, the other side of it, though, is that you meet these wonderful readers. Mm-hmm. And and that's really fantastic. I mean, I have relationships with people, real relationships I've never met. Um There's a woman, you know, I met who wrote me, reached out on Facebook, a black woman who lives in... Connecticut and we have she comes to my re, you know virtual readings and we have a relationship we even talked about going on a trip together <laughs> and um you know and that's kind of a, that's kind of a treat and a way that honestly just sort of opens a door to thinking about 
living in these times and intimacy, which is something I'm very intrigued with creatively. So it's just been a way to explore that and to think about what that means. But in general, I think that I'm, I'm a pretty um, quiet writer. And in fact, when this book came out, I remember reading a tweet, someone had written, you know, let's all praise quiet books. You know, it's probably some award season. Um, and I thought, well, that's what this book is. It's a quiet book. And it, it it turned out not to be as much as I thought it would be. And as I said, it's had a, it's had a different life um, than I imagined. I have stumbled upon criticism that calls into question my racial authenticity and, and, and very aggressive <laughs> uh, language. Uh, Learn to stare clear of that, you know, um, because I mean, you can't talk back to that. And also, you know, you can't, um, as again, I'm going to quote there is watching God. There's a great scene that made sense to me in a different way where Janie, you might remember the scene, she's leaving her first husband because she's met someone she likes more. And he's he, in his, in his pain and self-loathing, he accuses her of, you know, just being too good, for, thinking she's too good for him and, you know, kind of cutting her down. And she reflects, he's accusing me of my grandmother, my aunt, my cousins, you know, guilty as charged. And I thought, so, so it was interesting because even in that negative experience, I thought, Oh, I understand that part of person's book. It kind of was all worth it. You know, when you, you know, <laughs> I, I understand this now. I know what she was talking about. Um, so, you know, you develop that wall really, but at the same time, there are people you do want to let in. I mean, I had, those experiences mostly virtually and in person I've had, you know, writers, readers come up and tell me how the book has really been enabling for them. You know, I've heard from readers, uh, you know, in the UK who, you know, I couldn't people who, whose experiences in life could not be more different than mine, you know, but they found something in the book that was useful for them. And particularly the kind of adoption pieces I heard, that those really seem to have an ap application, you know, that seems to be pretty wide reaching. So I've heard from people mm. with really different adoption stories than mine. And so that's all, that's very humbling, you know, feeling that you did something and you shared something and that it has become part of someone else's life. And I learned something that I always believed. And I think I must've heard a writer talk about, but when the book is out, you know, it's, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It's, belongs to the reader. I mean, just like we hear a song and a song that sort of describes your life and no one can tell you otherwise, even the performer, even Adele can't tell you, well, that song is actually not about you. Thank you, Adele. Yes. No, actually it's about me, yeah. you know? Um, and so we have to be, understand that about the art we produce too, that people are going to use our work for, you know, and whatever purpose. Um, and we have, it, we have nothing to do with that as, you know, the kind of teachings of, Zen Buddhism to, to kind of water down, you know, what do the people, what do the people think of me as none of my business? You know, it's, I have no control over that. And so it's been an exercise of really putting that wisdom to work and it is a process, you know, and there are a lot of people I know who've told me, oh, I, I, you know, I couldn't write personally because I'm afraid of being judged. And I think, you know, that's just not a way I can live. I actually, when I was talking to Wendy, we had the same reason. I'd never heard somebody else say this, but she was saying, you know, I, Sure. Do I wish I could write safer things? Sure. But it would just come out weird. And I said, I, mean, I just laughed. I burst out laughing. I said, I feel the same. So I've said I could write about rocks, but it would, I'm sure I'd write about them in a way that would make people uncomfortable. I just, <laughs> I can't play it straight. It doesn't come to me. Um, 
And so, you know, just sort of, you know, having the courage of one's convictions, I think is, mm-hmm. you know, these tests are important. You know, who are you? What do you believe? Um, you know, are, are you willing to be vulnerable and perfect? Are you invested in fa- facades of, you know, and I think for me, the book was, and I, and, and an expression of an increasing conviction that it is through ambivalence. It is through uncertainty that we actually gain any wisdom and make any real connections and come to know our, ourselves. You know, I, I'm, I'm always feel allergic to people who are overly certain, you know, mm-hmm. um, about things. I really, it's like my, my least kind of favorite human trait, you know, um, people who just think that their experience, uh, is somehow a template for other people's experiences. You know, I really want to be known in my particularity and that's how I want to know other people. You know, I don't want to know you and say, Oh, Desmond people's X, Y, Z, you check these boxes. So you are in fact like this. I want to know who you are and I want to know all the choices you're making in your life. And I want to, I'm interested in the nuances. That's, I really treasure that. And the book is an expression of that need and desire to, as Ntozaki Shanga say, said, Ntozaki Shanga said in her famous play for colored girls, um, she said, I still crave intimacy and close talk. It's a line from one of, she's like, I think it's several women, you know, are, I was speaking through for certain experiences. And I, that line hit me when I was in college, you know, a good, 35 years ago, I still crave intimacy and close talk. And this is a character who'd just gone through some kind of betrayal. And I loved it just for the substance of it. You know, even you still want love, you know, there's, you still, we still have to make ourselves open to love, even if we've been hurt. It's the only way we grow. And so this book was about, you know, um, walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And in a way of also trying to invite the same kind of intimacy, the same kind of letting down of one's guard. And so, you know, it it still feels important to do that. And I think, if anything, the book has only deepened that hunger as opposed to put it, you know, quieted it. You know, I only feel that deeper hunger to know, um, to know people and to be known and to explore ideas and intimacies. So. It's been a it's been a, an interesting you know process, but it is I think it's true for all of us that you know we we move on you know the book the book is done you know your kids move out and you mm-hmm. find a new purpose for their room it doesn't mean <laughs> that you don't love them and don't want them to come back home but we got to move on you know I can't keep you know um, I can't keep a you know an archive to your room to your identity <laughs> that was your childhood identity you know it's changed things change so I feel the same way that. I, I'm, you know, need to to move on to other projects and have needed to move on to pro- other projects. As I said, I have fr- some friends who are really, you know, really focused on wringing the life out of, you know, a certain book and just really making sure it it hits everything and it just, you know, has has a just keeping that its public life to extend it for as long as possible. But, you know, for me, um, I just had to, I just had to stop at some point because 
just can't generate new work if you're really in the old work, you know? Um, so, so it's been an interesting, it's had an interesting life and I'm, I'm excited to, I had to learn to say no. It was the hardest thing I had to do actually over the course of this, the three years since uh, the book came out, I was so excited at first just to, you know, get to talk about it at all. And it's still a huge, it's still really, you know, I feel very honored when people want to talk about it, but um, learning to say no, learning to uh, figure out what, when you're pleased, trying to please someone else, when you're trying to please yourself and how to, you know, what do we owe our readers? Um, you know, and thinking about what I wanted from what I want from writers, you know, and, and trying to be the person, you know, who gives that <laughs> yeah. reader, you know, what they need. I would, you know, would hate to come, you don't want any reader to come away from an experience with you thinking, Oh, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you want to somehow give them a little bit, but, th- but there, there have been ex- occasions, I think, because, the book, you know, is very personal. Um, people have, have ex- believed they know me mm-hmm. in a way that is really discomforting. And I'm still learning how to deal with that, how to respond to a reader who really thinks, you know, um, did you ever see the King of, I think it's called the King of Comedy. It's Robert De Niro and Sandra Bernhard. No. Okay. And she's, he's a comedian, I think in New York and she's, a, a rabid fan who she thinks, you know, you belong to me. And she ends up kind of kidnapping him. For, and so, um, you know, you, you, ha, you know, you, you, the intensity of people's responses can be unsettling because you, you know, you're, you're trying to get the story down. Right. So it's, it's been an interesting Have journey. People crossed your boundaries. Uh, in yeah. Yeah. People any really have particular, any vague, uh, example you want to share or no. I will share an example. Um, and, and I, I, it was a learning experience, but I was invited to to speak at a school in Vermont. And the person who invited me very early on was invoking my children and my husband and my dog and saying, maybe you can bring them with you. And I thought she really doesn't understand that this is, you know, I, this was a book, you know, these are stories. I'm not like, I'm not part of a traveling entourage just <laughs> sharing our stories, you know? And, and that was ended up, the learning was that I should have run in the other direction <laughs> um, because you cannot satisfy, you know, that, that kind of need uh, people want to know you. What I have learned and I've said now, I, I, I can be very personal, but I'm not, trusting you know i don't i don't have to trust every you know i can tell these stories but there's a lot and i think sometimes people don't but you know you say to yourself well that the book was effective because the person thought that you know i was really right there on the page and (laughs) that's what you want like you know an actor who you you know feel have feelings about you feel a way about because of some performance they gave and you know it's hard to to disconnect, you know, sometimes um, the actor from the performance. I think there's something about that, but I will just say to sum this up, I hope that was, there's some substance in there. Oh yeah. But you know, this next book is not about me per se. And that is a huge relief. Hmm. Um, Although it's very much about me in every way, but you know, um, I had a friend who once said, you know, we were always writing our autobiographies. I thought it was great. And it's true for every book I've done. I mean, it's, it's an expression of my passion, you know, and my curiosity and fears and hopes and beliefs. And this next book is no different. 
but um, I am relieved not to have to have every every story begin and end with the with the eye, you know, mm-hmm. and be able to uh, and to do my favorite thing, which is to snoop around other people's lives. So <laughs> that is that is what I, I I'm excited to do for the next book. Hmm. Um, you uh, <clears throat> you mentioned a word several times, intimacy. Um, and you know, before we, uh, I, I want to dive into unfinished women next before we, uh, do that. Um, I, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what, how you think of intimacy, um, or at least what, what you're trying to do with the idea of intimacy, how you try to work with it as a writer. Um, and, uh, in, in this, new time of incredible distance. You've been doing a lot of remote work and I've read that you've appreciated how that's opened, uh, opened new audiences up to you, uh, in a way. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that element in your life. I think, you know, I'm somebody who to my dying day will believe in the primacy of interpersonal connections I am, I think my interest in human beings is bottomless. Um, as opposed to, you know, my husband is sort of, he's oriented toward fuse, excuse me. My husband is interested in food, music, sports, politics, you know, um, those are, that's how he's oriented. But I'm really, you know, to me, human beings are, I just can't get enough of them. And I think there's something about me that's just always, feeling outside at the same time, you know, the hunger comes from feeling a little out of step with people. A lot of the time, I'm very interested in why people do think things the way they do. Um, There's a part of me that stubbornly believes that when it comes to race and racism, and even some of these geopolitical issues that honesty, vulnerability, accountability, and empathy could go a long way to towards solving those issues. I mean, I don't know that will ever happen. Right. Um, I used to think that my, my dream, my fantasy used to be that what if Donald Trump just had a complete breakdown and a straight up come to Jesus, the world (laughs) would be different, you know, and got on the stage and said, I was blind, but now I see, Mm -hmm. you know, we would have a different (laughs) world. Um, if he could tell the truth and if he could show remorse and if he could, you know, we would have a different world. So, um, you know, that test, that faith has been tested over this period. I, I used to think that most people were good. And now I, I don't know that anymore. I've been, I'm, I'm so shocked, like many people, by the lack of compassion for other human beings that Americans have exhibited and the callous disregard of the needs of other people has severely shaken my faith. Um, But I do still believe in the idea, (laughs) Um, maybe like God, you know, um, it's the idea, it's the promise of something, you know, maybe that's what it really is. And I think I just need to, to keep believing in order to keep living. How do you keep believing that and keep an, keep your eyes open too? You know, maybe like you, I've this over this period um, been very disappointed in some white people in my life that I 
didn't think would disappoint me in the way they did. You know, who, as it turned out, really thinking of me as their black friend, you know, and had, and I hadn't realized, I mean, I understood myself to be a black woman in a friendship with the person who was not black, but I did not realize the degree to which they had me in a separate sphere, you know, when they considered who I was and how much of their feelings about me were kind of immersed in some kind of guilt and fear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's been disappointing, but you know, like everybody, I'm, I'm alive. I'm glad to be alive to ex- have experienced it. Sometimes the truth hurts, and it has created, um, it's offered, given me some new wisdom to share with my children. You know, which really who are my priority. So, um, and helping to help them navigate the world. So, you know, how to how to balance a sense of of, of possibility and enthusiasm with kind of wisdom that we've all gained, you know, um, from this period or, you know, how to make, make room for all of the disappointments we've had of the fear, the lack of trust, the suspicion, you know, we all are feeling about each other, I think, but you know, we have to try, we have to try to connect. We must connect. We must try. Not everybody is worthy of your vulnerability. You know, I was talking to a, a, a black woman who I, although she is close to my age, have, have sort of maternal, literary maternal feelings for, I guess. And I was telling her, you know, not everybody deserves your tears. You know, not everybody deserves your faith, your trust. And that is something we all know. Um, but I still believe in faith and trust and vulnerability, although this period has been hard. So... That, I, I forgot your question, but I, I yeah. Um, something about intimacy. I think, oh, intimacy. I think you've been yes. answering it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think also, may I say that it really is a driving force. And I would say that that is true for all of my work. You know, I've, I've as you know, I've done, um, I've edited, you know, a collection of essays about interracial friendship. I've written about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and, the theme or the thread that connects is, is, is about wanting to know others and wanting to know how we know others has been some, is something that is very interesting to me. Um, and so what does it take to know someone? I can tell you that I feel I know Carl von Vecten very well. He died in 1960. I mean, yes, he died, you know, seven years before I was born. He was born in 1880. I feel I know Journal Hurston very well. <laughs> you know, she was born in 1891. Um, and there is no way, you know, we could have ever had any kind of connection at all. But I think about them a lot. I have read their personal papers. Um, and I, I know them better than I know some people in my life that I call friends. I feel closer to them than some people in my life I call friends. I think that's really fascinating. And it's something else I'm, I'm glad to have been alive to experience. I always encourage you know anybody, but certainly my students, go to an archive, mm-hmm. see what people leave behind. Um, what are they trying to teach you? What are they trying to tell you what was unsettled in their lives? What can we learn? You know, something that's kind of frustrating. Um, I think I, you know, I talked about this, you know, kind of contemporary discourse around everything, you know, is this, I think, a, a, 
an underlying belief that these problems we're facing are new and they're not new, you know, nothing, not even what's happening in the Ukraine, not what's happening in this country. All of these problems, you know, were established. They were, you know, the damage was done decades, generations ago. And now we're, you know, kind of facing the effects of that or facing the, the consequences of that damage, you know. But there have been many people who came and lived before us who wrestled with these problems and we should listen to them and we should understand them. Um, and so I think for me, intimacy is very, is, is crucial. You know, I think um, that drives a lot of art, you know, and that art speaks to me the most. When I hear that writer's voice saying, you know, do you hear me? Do you understand me? You know, am I alone? You know, I, I, I'm so, that's the most voice that speaks to me the most deeply, a writer who's very invested in the hard work of being known and in a, that a way that's very connected to, to wanting to know others, you know. And I think that's one of the pleasures and duties of this life to, to find a way to connect to people, particularly people who are very different from us, people we might dismiss out of hand, you know, not just people who talk like us and think like us, but people who might challenge us. Um, and of course, we have to find that line for ourselves. You know, what is what is a kind of um, connection we don't we don't want, <laughs> you know, and is unbearable and unproductive, and which which is one can, where we can be stretched and um, challenged in important ways. So it really is something I think about. You know, it's I think about it in every aspect, my personal and creative life. Even thinking about my my daughters and, and family. You know, I was saying to my husband recently, "Isn't it amazing? We made a family out of a promise." You know. Not blood, not genes, but a pl- promise that we would take care of and look after these kids. And look what it has. It's amazing to me still that what has what has produced, you know, and it, it's humbling, though, because you think, can I make good on this promise, you know, for the rest of my life? And it's any, like any kind of commitment. So I'm. Um, yeah, I'm really driven by it. I'm really, really driven by that. The need to know and the need to be known. It's it's interesting because. Y- there i think you you said it well so much of art is is it depends on intimacy and and is all about it and yet uh particularly with writing uh it cre- creating that um connection to the idea at all communing with anything requires such solitude um and so there was something you said during the pre-interview uh about after having been out in the world too much lately, you realize that there's nothing for the writer but you and the page. And yet that creates so much, that creates so much connection to the world, to, to ideas, to, to history. So um, I would love if you could just talk about the page a little bit, what it mm. is for you and what it does for you, you and the page. Mm. Well, we talk about intimacy. You know, that is the encounter with the unknown. It's where we confront our fears, our fantasies, our inner lives, where time stops, um, getting closest to the bone. And it's scary, you know, that, that, that going into that place can be very scary, you know. I don't know about you, but even when it's going well, I get, get scared. It's like, um, going on a roller coaster mm-hmm. and 
you know, I know I'm going to survive, you know, most likely, <laughs> um, but, um, but it's going to be a rough ride. And I guess, you know, I mean, I'd prefer it that way. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. Yeah. I, you know, I'll tell you something right now is happening is that I have arthritis in my thumbs. I wear these thumbs once now and I typing is, is fine, but writing by hand, it really is painful. And when I'm writing by hand and I will sometimes force myself to do it, uh, just, to, you know, we often just to feel the words and slow down our brains. Um, it's, uh, it's, there's real pain, you know, and, I, I think we have to think more carefully about what I'm putting down and what I'm erasing. You know, um, there's in, in a way it helps because I have to I'm focusing on getting done with it as opposed to the ear, less voice in your ear say, what are you doing here? You know, I'm really just, I'm getting to the end of the page, you know, slow and steady. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think um, for me, it is a place to, I come to I come most myself lay down all the burdens, you know, um, and prepare to, to leap into the abyss, you know, um, and that can be really scary, you know, so I have to break that down, you know, um, to make myself able to summon the courage to do that because it really does come down to that. Um, I, wrote a piece recently for our mutual friend, Chantilly Gander, who has a, as you know, as I am, it's Gander, right? Gander. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote a piece recently for our mutual friend, Chantilly Gander. She has a show up at the Flynn right now. Excuse me. She has a show up at the Fleming museum. The Fleming, right? Yes. And I goddess. Right. And I wanted to write the piece. I was terrified to write the piece and I pulled up to the, page one day and thought I have to write something beautiful for this woman who I adore. And I did. And it was scary or, you know, you, you, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, what I'll say is that I wrote something true and something scary. Um, and it was a moment where I really didn't know if I had it in me. You know, I really didn't know if I had it in me, but it was, it was my love for her that, brought me over the edge and my admiration for her, my desire to support her mm-hmm. and, you know, very selfish Intimacy. desire to be right. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be part of the, I wanted to be part of the show. So, you know, I gave myself that choice. Okay. You don't have to write this or anything ever again. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll have that bargain with myself. How does that feel? It feels terrible. That feels like a, you know, an existence without a mouth or something, or, you know, um, but it was, and I, and I, and I felt, felt, okay, I'm alive. You know, my limbs work and, you know, I'm still alive is what I felt. But, um, you know, it's always, it's always a, um, it's always intimidating. Now, I mean, the older you get, you realize, okay, I've been through this a hundred times before, (laughs) you know, unless something really dramatic and, and, you know, asteroid comes crashing into my office, chances are I'm going to finish this and it's going to have the same, you know, I'll get to somewhere that works for me, even if it maybe is not what I dreamed of producing. Um, but it's still, it's daunting, you know, it's daunting. I think all writers have our tricks, right. To um, get to that page and to stay in the chair and mm-hmm. to get that work done. And these days I'm, I'm having to work in small increments, partly because of my thumbs and also just because it's just, I'm climbing up out of that, onto shore, you know, after having been in the swamp of so many, so many things happening. 
But yeah, I mean, it's really where I'm my best self, I think. Not always my nicest, not always my, mm -hmm. you know, most forgiving, but my most authentic self happens on the page. Not, not often in real life. You know, I, um, I've been told in the past that I'm a very good listener. But as I get older, I think it's just because I, I really often don't know what to say, you know, so I just keep asking questions. <laughs> I don't like to say, so how are you? You know, <laughs> so what's really going on? I just don't know what to say. So, but on the page, I, I get to a place where I know what to say. And I am always in intimate communion with a reader who I think will get it. You know, the, the writing is that, that promise of somebody, you know, I feel like the page promises there's somebody out there who, who's, ready to read what you're writing. And that was, um, that, that really helped me get through this book and also some other pieces I've, I've written. But I think, um, you know, that, that when you're first starting, it's so private and it's so personal and it's so, it's so contained, you know, you mm -hmm. and whatever writing instrument and getting that, those words out. And then as your work continues, you know, then it, there are the people involved who are making decisions. And, but th that's the, that's the precious moment, you know, when you're there and really anything can happen and you just have to open that faucet and then, and just have faith, but it could be very, very daunting. I think and every, I don't think it gets easier. I was talking to Vivian Gornick in New York and now she's all of 85 and said, oh, no, you know, she told me it never gets easier. <laughs> it never gets easier. But she also said to me that she's really hopeful about the future. She said there's, you know, a long tradition of people in very old age who mm -hmm. produce their. And for her, she still feels she says, I, I want to produce something of lasting value. And I said, you've done that so many times over. But she's still trying to get it down, trying to get down exactly what she means. And I think that's what drives us all in the end. You know, mm -hmm. everything else. We, we deal with all the other things because we just are driven to try to get at the heart of the truth of our experience or the things that obsess us, the things we care about. And that's a lifelong quest, but it starts right there, you know, with the page and opening, <clears throat> clearing your throat and then opening your mouth and just trying, you know, seeing what comes out. Hmm. Um, let's talk about unfinished women. So this is your new project uh, for which you won a very prestigious 2020 Andrew Carnegie Fellowship, correct? That's right. Great. So um, this, uh, I think you described the book in, a, in an article for UVM as a, a meditation on the notion of success itself. The book will explore the experiences of black women whose lives don't conform to the triumph to triumphalism that characterizes typical American success narratives. Uh, how did you settle into this subject? Mm. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this book for a long time. Do you ever have that experience where you think, gosh, I've been actually working on this book for 20 years, you know? Um, and I, I also, for any of your listeners, you know, a mistake that I've made too many times in the past is not clipping that article, you know, not noting that, um, those sort of sites of inspiration can keep you going, you know, um, but I read a book, I think, a, a lot, for a long time, um, I've been thinking about this book. I, there's so many moments um, reading when Anita Hill um, wrote her autobiography. I read it and was fascinated by the way she told the story and the way that story unfolded and what it meant for her to stand up. I mean, I, I mean, 
obviously the book isn't personal, but they, all the stories have kind of these personal portals, you know, and I remember, you know, being shocked by the amount of disbelief um, around her claims that I heard from family members and, you know, my parents, colleagues and all the, you know, all the, all the, just the casual sexism. Um, and it was, it was really surprising. Black professional people I grew up with, you know, really just didn't believe her. And then the book she talked about having received, I think, you know, thousands of letters from women who had experienced something similar and never got any justice. And she knew she couldn't stop because she would be letting so many people down. And she knew she, they kept her fortified. And I thought it's so interesting. And so in the wake of me too, I, I started thinking about well, what about all the women who did everything right? You know, they filed the reports, they filed the claims, they maybe even got legal representation but they never got any justice and maybe they were ostracized by their communities. Maybe they were disbelieved by people they loved. And I want to know about those stories. You know, um, we're hearing a lot of stories now, not, not to minimize any of the stories uh, because there's a lot of, a lot of pain, you know, that leads to even a modicum of, of justice, you know, but I'm interested in this woman who didn't find success in the ways or find justice in the ways that we celebrate, you know, there's no verdict in their favor. So they had to, to continue, um, how do you do that? How do you continue knowing that nobody believed you? So I have a fantasy of just sort of giving that woman a platform. Hmm. Um, and there, you know, again, I've met so many women, uh, you know, over the course of my years in the archives that I just, whose lives I, I, I want people to know about, like Freddie Washington is somebody I'm writing about. And she was, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I Say read, no <laughs> um, yeah, I read your, um, an excerpt of the piece about Freddie Washington in the American scholar. Yeah. And, um, for me, Freddie Washington's story really, really resonated with me as a very light skinned black person working in media. So, uh, you mind if I read just a, a few lines of from course, that? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Okay. It was my mother, born four years after Imitation of Life was released in theaters, who introduced me to the complex and fascinating public relation, public reaction to Washington's performance, particularly among Black people. Washington was ultimately compelled to launch a massive campaign to refute rumors that she was as dissatisfied with her Blackness as the character she played. Too white looking to play Black and too Black to snag the leading roles for which she was obviously suited, Washington ultimately retired from the stage and screen to become a Hollywood watchdog with a weekly column devoted to the problem of racial representation in the performing arts. So that I think describes the, the story, uh, the kind of person you want to platform uh, so well. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you could talk about the thread uh, that that essay follows a little bit. You also mentioned um, that it was your mother that, that, uh, uh, introduce you to the story. Could you uh, elaborate a little bit? Yes, I will. Yeah, my mother, um, you know, I remember her telling me about uh, Freddie Washington or telling me about Imitation of Life. She was, um, you know, someone who loved, you know, classic films. So we watched it together. And she told me about the kind of public outrage around the character of, of Piola, who Freddie Washington plays Piola, who's 
a light-skinned black girl who wants to pass her white is constantly thwarted by her mother, Louise Beavers, <laughs> um, <laughs> who plays a kind of classic, a kind of kind of mammy role in this film as she did in other films. And, you know, it's, she learns too late, right? You know, that she's this mortal sin of, uh, of race passing and ends up, you know, kind of properly um, chastened, let's say by, by the, at the end of the movie. And yeah, I, I, I was so interested and intrigued in this because one thing my mother was so interested in was how people could not distinguish, you know, between Freddie Piccola, P, excuse me, Piola, Piccola Breedlove is <laughs> Morrison's character of Lewis High. But my mother was herself flabbergasted and kind of amused that she remembered that all of the public uproar mm-hmm. about Freddie Washington, people really thought, well, this, you know, it was all in the black newspapers. People felt that she must be this character. And she had to kind of defend herself and say, literally an article after article, like, I'm, I am black and I enjoy being black. Uh-huh. Thanks very much. Um, and I thought it was an interesting thing to have to assert. And at the same time, she wasn't able to get roles. She wasn't able to, you know, kind of really be an artist in a way that could pay the bills that she didn't get roles that were really worthy of her talent because she was light skinned. I mean, she performed with Paul Robeson, I think in the movie body and soul and they darkened her skin in order to make the pairing look acceptable to Southern theaters because he, she was so light. Um, and so I, I, I'm just, I was so intrigued by that. And my question that I, I'm still pursuing one, you know, I, I love thinking about her uh, because she, it was so magnetic on the screen and, you know, what do you do if you were truly an, an actor, but there is no stage for you mm-hmm. or the only roles that you're offered are beneath you or just, you know, um, so she ends up being, you know, kind of a watchdog, a Hollywood watchdog. And she writes, it keeps a column and writes about the lack of roles for black people in theater in Hollywood. And so she had, you know, a really important role that she kind of created for herself. She stayed connected to the arts, but she wasn't able to pursue that career. So she's exactly the kind of woman I'm interested in. You know, and to look at these choices and to think about what it meant for her, but also not just Freddie Washington, but each woman that I'm writing about opens her story. I think about it in the book as a story first, you know, as opposed to the individual lives. Um, so it's not sort of a collection of encyclopedia entries, you know what I mean? But really about the issues that their lives bring up, about work. Um, and the body about the experience of being having a body that's unintelligible <laughs> um, and not being able to live that complexity, you know? Um, and for, for Washington who, you know, I think um, was not someone who was ever going to kind of get married and, look for a husband to support her life. What she did, you know, she made work for herself. She made a career. She, she carved out a place for herself. And I'm, I'm very, really interested. 
And similarly, I'm interested in, in Imitation of Life and the story that that film and the, the movie tells, you know, the, the film, excuse me, and the book tell similar but very different stories about work and women, really what it's about. I, I recently went to see the Lynn Nottage Opera in New York, Intimate Apparel. And it's really a lot of the same issues, you know, about uh, about women and work and freedom, you know, for, for a woman and what does it take to be free mm-hmm. and what role money plays. That's what the movie really is about in some way, you know, because the Piola character, she she wants to work, you know, she wants to work. So what she, and when her mother finds her as an adult, she's in, she's working, <laughs> you know, she's not sitting in a, not, she's not um, Claire Kendry in passing, you know, wanting to be taken care of by a rich man. She wants to be, she wants to be one of the working girls, you know, and, but I mean, she can't have the kind of job she wants to have as a, as a black woman. So her book, you know, I think enables an investigation to a lot of different kinds of issues. And I'm also interested, you know, um, in Zorna Hurston in the same way, you know, we, Hurston's maybe the most famous person in the book at this point. And I'm not going to rehash, you know, the kind of very well-known stories of the life of Zorna Hurston, although more people should, you know, know about her, but, I'm interested in, in what it takes, what it took for Hurston to um, maintain a career. The same kind of question, you know, because she, you probably know, encountered a lot of professional difficulties, personal difficulties in her life. And I want to know what happens when you've got a woman who is such a brilliant artist and the first Black woman Guggenheim fellow, um, works with Franz Boas, you know, is doing all this incredible work. Ends up, how does she end up penniless, you know, um, working as a domestic you know, in Florida. So, and also this, the, the estate of Zornel Hurston or the kind of myth of Zornel Hurston has, you know, it's almost like they're, it's two, they're two different, you know, entities, you know, there's a, the idea, Hurston, the ideal, I guess, and Hurston, the person who disappointed us sometimes, you know, and the, her, some of her political positions were curious, you know? <laughs> and um, so I, I, but I'm, so I'm interested in that question of legacy, how we remember people and why they get remembered. You know, that's really tied to that question of success. And you know, we who gets celebrated and why, what are the typical American narratives of success? Um, I'm, I'm working with a woman who, you know, I wanted to write a story about an ordinary person too, you know, someone who was not a film star or anything. And, and a woman actually who I, I adore a woman who lives in, in Vermont and she's 80 years old. And we had this conversation, I think when the pandemic first hit and I was checking with all my elders and I was saying, you know, I've, I've never felt more content with my life in Vermont, you know, with the uh, early on, you know, our numbers were so low and it was just, this is clearly a good place to quarantine. She said, you really feel that way? I said, yeah. She goes, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever be content here. That was so interesting that at 80, she could still feel that way. And so I wanted to tell that story and, and to think about, um, I mean, for her, so I wanted to tell the story of a, of a kind of ordinary person. Paul Marshall did a piece many years ago called Rena, and you can find it in a collection, Rena and other stories. And she was a, you know, a fiction writer. And it's a piece it was supposed to be a kind of a journalistic piece about women immigrants from the Barbados where, you know, Paul Marshall, I think she was from the Barbados 
and in New York. So it's like the kind of a social sociological study, but she started to decided to do something of a composite, something that, that kind of um, stood on the line between fiction and, and fact. And she actually didn't like the piece because she didn't like the, in the end, she, in the, at the end of her life said, ah, I didn't like that. It was sort of, I didn't like blurring those generic boundaries, but I really liked it. It's always stayed with me. And I, so I wanted to tell a story also about a woman who, you know, she lived her life, but, and, but what's it, but so, so to ask that larger question, you know, like who does, whose life is worthy of being remembered, you know, um, and to kind of push that. And after talking to this, this is my friend, you know, she really, it's something that's been extraordinary. Her life is her marriage, you know, which has been like 60 years. Um, she married a white dude. Um, she moved up to Vermont. That was it. I mean, at the beginning of the, the story, um, they have a wonderful marriage. You can see it. Even when we've done our zoom calls, it's clear, you know, how much she supports her, how much she adores her. He's sitting off screen all the time, handing her pictures when she needs them. And I thought, you know, this is lovely. It's so it's so wonderful and unique and rare. And so I'm interested in that. Um, and also the experience of sort of being an expatriate in this country is what she, you know, she grew up in St. Louis and now this place. And I've recently decided I'm very interested in, in um, Mrs. Cosby as an unfinished woman. You know, have, and if you've seen the new documentary by Kamal Bell, it's really no. good. Oh yeah, okay, we've got to talk about. Okay, really, I, I really <laughs> want to talk to you about it if you've seen it. But you know, I thought we really have to talk about Camille. <laughs> you know, the documentary we have, we have to talk about. We've got to talk about Cosby. We have to talk yeah. about Cosby. And you know, I think about Camille and and then the thread again, the, the question of marriage. What does it what does it mean in, in a woman's life in a black woman's life? Um, I think about that plastic smile she always wears. You know. Um, and I'm interested in that as someone who started out and she had the, and she, the essays, they all, they kind of connect, you know, but she was a kind of Du Boisian ideal. You know, when you look at her, she was exactly the kind of young woman, child, baby that, um, would have been on the, in the cover of the crisis magazine. And she was sort of this, you know, lovely product of the black bourgeoisie and, you know, um, and Cosby was really kind of beneath her and in, in station, you know, and her father didn't want the marriage, but, and so she married the guy and he became rich again. Like, you know, that, that some people that's success story, you know, mm-hmm. you, but obviously, you know, um, and I'm, I'm interested in what it means for her and what we want from Camille. You know, we piled on Huma Abedin, we piled on Hillary Clinton, you know, um, for standing by their men, you know, there's a good wife, you know, kind of, but what about Camille? You know, we, it's been very interesting, a lot of silence about around her. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I, I'm going into that essay sort of not knowing what I even want from Camille or what to say, but certainly, you know, if we think about a cultural shift, then we have to think about everybody who's complicit, you know, mm-hmm. and supporting these, these kinds of men. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to get in some trouble. You know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> and I really think we have to talk about Camille. Mm-hmm. And Are so you I, um, securing an interview? Oh, I'm sure I won't. I mean, I'm sure okay. I have to, I, yeah, she, she doesn't talk to the press at all. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. very defensive and it, apparently even with a Kamal yeah, Bell sure. documentary, you know, he came out condemning it everything. Mm. So I just, if anything, I just have to make sure legally that we won't be sued, you know, for right. what I'm going to. Uh, be interested in but again again it's not some i you know i think the question for that essay is is a larger question is how do you write about somebody who's utter so utterly unknowable 
you know, how do you write about that person? Um, you know, what, 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 what can she be known? Uh, you know, does she stand for anything in our culture of this, about this moment? Um, and so I want to get into it there and to think more broadly about those issues, you know, um, do most of uh, these essays or, or your essays in general have a kind of central guiding question like that? Yes. Yeah. I, I want them all to, because I, I think, you know, just to avoid um, producing a book that's sort of like dutiful biographical portraits, but mm-hmm. I want them to really do more than that. You know, I want, I want them to, these are lives that ask questions that I find compelling um, or help introduce ideas that, I find really interesting. I want to know, you know, I want to know what it's like. Um, mm-hmm. And so as close as you can get to that, you know, I'm, I'm writing about Camille possibly, and I'm like writing about, you know, Freddie Washington, who I also can't interview, you know? <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm interested in that, how, how we get to know people, you know, and can we, can we know someone who, who doesn't tell the whole story? You know, can we still write anything interesting about them? So, you know, I mean, I, I'm, this book is a lot of, um, already been a lot of trial and error, you know, trying to figure out, I mean, and a lot of mourning, you know, very early on, I had to kind of give up the idea. I mean, there's only so many women I can, I mean, I can't write about every single person, you know, the list uh-huh. keeps changing and I'm happy because I really thought that Audrey Lord would be part of this book. Um, and then I realized that she didn't really fit, but then very happily, I am going to be writing. And if you read, there was in the times some months ago and Skip Gates is doing a series of, short biographies. And so I'm going to be doing one on, on Audrey Lord, which I'm happy about. So that mm. was, I, t- I had to have a little, hold my own hand and say, I'm sorry, Emily, but Audrey does not fit into this book. And I had to, you know, and then, so I get to write about Audrey, but after this book is done. So I've got a few years of work mapped out um, mm-hmm. between this book and the, and the Audrey Lord book. And I'm, I'm inter- interested in, in just, I'm learning a lot, you know, on the journey. And um, you're going to New York on Monday to the archives to study for, uh, to research for uh, this unfinished women. Is that it? Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. go yeah, snoop around the Schomburg and look at materials. I'm excited because, you know, a lot of archives have been able to digitize. It's expensive and time consuming. So not every, you know, it takes a long time, but the Schomburg does have, they are admitting visitors. So I'm excited to literally, you know, sit close to these documents. I mean, be reading things and, you know, um, microfilm, but I'm really looking forward to getting into, getting into deep, deep in the weeds of this. Well, I don't know. I think we've done a great job. Okay, great. Thank you, Desmond. I've enjoyed this. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Thank you very much, Emily. That is our show, folks. You can learn more about Emily Bernard and her work in the show notes at vermontartscouncil.org slash podcast. And you'll be glad you did. Vermont Made is a production of the Vermont Arts Council, the primary provider of funding, advocacy, and info for the arts here in Vermont, which is and has always been Abenaki land. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 